So the economy is in trouble. Um, recent political events have left many in ruin and almost everybody struggling financially. Inflation's out of control. People have no idea what the future holds economically. National morale is low. Most people are exhausted and angry. They were promised that better days were ahead, but all they found is disappointment. Um, corruption and wickedness is rampant even among spiritual leaders. Those who are supposed to preach and teach the truth manipulate it. They declare and say that sin is good and God doesn't really care what we do. The institution of marriage, as God designed it, is completely disregarded. Scandal after scandal among religious leaders have left people deconstructing their faith and not really sure if the Bible's true at all. The land's filled with religious skepticism. Even those who claim to care about God don't really live like it. And the whole place is filled with a kind of spiritual apathy that just shrugs its shoulders at God. Speaking, of course, about Israel um, during the book of Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. It's kind of the problem with the Old Testament, isn't it? It's so far removed from our situation today, it's hard to find any of it relevant at all. <laughs> But the reality is our situation has many similarities to Israel and Malachi's day. And every part of the Bible is relevant for our lives. But one of the most significant issues of our day, I believe, is this issue of spiritual apathy. Um, it's this general indifference to the things of God. And if we're honest, we've all found ourselves in moments or in days, or weeks, or possibly even seasons where we've been in spiritual apathy ourselves. And so the question I want to wrestle with this morning is, what makes this so destructive to our souls? And so this morning, we're going to look at the spiritual apathy in Malachi's day, and we'll see that it's much like our own. Um, so if you are able, if you would turn to the book of Malachi, if you have a hard time finding it, find the book of Matthew and go one page back and then you're, you're there. But we're going to be in chapter 1 of the book of Malachi. I'm going to read the whole chapter for us. If you would stand for the reading of God's word, if you're able. So, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down. They will be called the wicked country, the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious with us. With such a gift from your hand will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle my fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. 
For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name in a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its offering and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness is this, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, where is lame and is sick, and you bring it as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that your name um, would be great and would be feared and would be hallowed in this place. Lord, would you illuminate your word to us? Would your Holy Spirit not just open our ears, but would you warm our hearts? And would those of us who are stuck in spiritual apathy, would you help deliver us? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. So. Point number one in your bulletin, if you're keeping notes, we're going to talk about the, the message of the book of Malachi. So the message of this entire book, or the message of the book of Malachi, is that the people need to repent of their spiritual apathy. So the message of Malachi is that the people need to repent of their spiritual apathy. And so to be clear, I want to define what I mean by spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy, it's a lack of care for God. Or spiritual apathy, it's kind of a coldness or it's an indifference to God. It's revealed it's that feeling that comes when you go, ah, maybe I should read my Bible, and your heart just kind of shrugs, you know, eh, maybe not. That is it. And this apathy, it's everywhere in our day today, and it was everywhere in Malachi's day as well. I'm going to give you a little bit of background of the book of Malachi, because usually what holds us back often from reading the Old Testament is that we're so far removed from it. It feels like a distant land and unlike our day, but when you study the history of the Bible, especially the history of our faith, or any history, you discover, well, people back then are much like us today, too. In the book of Malachi, it's really meant to be intentionally accessible. Its context is almost, um, it's honestly slightly unclear. From the very beginning, we don't even really know who Malachi is because it tells us nothing about him, and the rest of the book won't tell us any more about him. He's probably the last prophet, but we don't know who his father is. We don't know what tribe he's from. We don't get his background. All we get in verse 1 is the oracle or the burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And Malachi might not even be his name because it also could just be a title. It means my messenger, my angel. We know so little about him. And we don't know exactly when the book is written. The only thing we know for sure is it was written after the exile. Okay, Israel is given the promised land by Moses after they left Egypt, and they could keep it as long as they obeyed and they kept the covenant and followed God's promises. But because of their disobedience, after hundreds of years, God sent them into exile into Babylon. Seventy years later, they come back. And so they're here, but the land is desolate, it's destroyed, the economy is no more, national morale is low, they've been conquered, they have no idea what the future holds if they'll get conquered again. Poverty's high, sin and wickedness are rampant. At some point after this is when Malachi comes. It seems the temple has been rebuilt because their sacrifices, their normal worship has resumed. So he probably came at least sometime after Nehemiah or Ezra. Or he could have been in the middle of them. People differ exactly when because we don't have many clues. I think that Malachi comes probably after Nehemiah and Ezra have left the scene. 
but some will put it right in Nehemiah chapter 13. But what this book shows us is that even after revival, even after the spiritual mountaintops, that spiritual apathy has come again for God's people. In the book, it's organized as a series of kind of back and forth between God's people. You saw it a number of times already where these disputations or arguments where they say, well, we say this and God says something back. You know, this phrase, but you say, is repeated nine times in this short book of four chapters. And they say this repeatedly because the people are spiritually apathetic. They really don't care what God says. When God tells them something, they dare to talk back to Him. They don't care what God wants. They don't care what the prophet of God tells them. In fact, they value God so little, they think they can argue with Him. And it reveals their spiritual apathy that Malachi is calling them to repent of. And so the whole message of this book is about spiritual apathy. And throughout this book, we will see several areas of their life that it is affecting. And so point number two is the, the second area, and one of the most significant, is that spiritual apathy makes us doubt God's love. But spiritual apathy, it makes us doubt God's love. This is kind of the foundation, I think. Or at least it was in Malachi's day, because the first thing that their apathy did was make them doubt that God really did love them that he really did care for them. Verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? It's their objection. For preachers their whole lives tell them how much God loves them, but they don't feel like it. They don't believe it. And they're talking back to God illustrates us. It's their question, well, how have you loved us? It's kind of a very modern objection. Or we still have people who say this today. Well, if God is love, why do bad things happen? If God is love, why does He let people suffer? It's a question of, of doubt. They say, okay, well, He loves me. Well, so what? What is that good for? What has all this love of God gained me? What has God done for me lately? Well, God has a response. They ask what God has done, and so God reminds them of their history. Because when you doubt God's love in the present, you should return to the past. Remind yourself of all the times that He has shown His love to you. This is what God does. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau have I hated. I've laid waste to his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Oof, there's a lot to unpack here. And what is all this talk of love and hatred of Jacob and Esau? Well, first, this should remind you, if you're familiar of it, the story of Jacob and Esau in the book of Genesis. They're both descendants of Abraham and sons of Isaac. And so the special covenant, the blessing of God, should have come to one of them. Problem is they're twins. So the question is, which brother gets to have the blessing? Technically, Esau's born first, so he should get it. And Esau's a manly man. All right, everybody wants to be like Esau. And Esau is even his father's favorite son. By all accounts, Esau should have been the choice, but God chooses Jacob. Why? Because God almost always chooses the weaker. God chooses the neglected. God chooses those who have been passed over. And God chooses Jacob. And this discussion of love and hatred is not describing emotions. It's not as if God is twitter-pated like Bambi or, or head over heels in love with Jacob. But every time he looks at Esau, he's just filled with anger and rage. And that's not what it's doing. Love and hatred, especially throughout the Old Testament, is describing covenant language. It's not describing emotions, but it's describing the promises and the actions of God, of his loyalty. His love means, I've made vows to Jacob. 
This hatred means I have not made vows to Jacob. I have not chosen him. It shows God's priority. And so God's love and loyalty to Jacob have been revealed all throughout his history. It's what he's trying to remind them of in verse 3. But Esau I have hated, and I've laid waste to his hill country, and I've left his heritage to jackals of the desert. Esau has faced God's judgment. Edom is the descendants of Esau. So the country of Edom has been destroyed just like Israel has been destroyed. But the difference is in verse 4, if Edom says, well, we're shattered, but we'll rebuild the ruins, which is what Israel has just been doing. The Lord of hosts says, they can build, but I'm going to tear it down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Edom has also been destroyed by God's judgment and they want to rebuild. They come back from their own exile. They want to start back over. But God says, no, you're not coming back. There's no escape from my judgment. And this is in comparison to Israel, right? They've been destroyed, but they're rebuilding the ruins. Nehemiah, they've rebuilt the walls. Ezra and Haggai, they're rebuilding the temple, and God allows it. God encourages it. Well, what's the difference? Well, first we need to see this isn't a matter of injustice. This isn't God being unfair. Edom is rightly punished for generations and hundreds of years of sinfulness and wickedness. You want to know how many prophets prophesied to Edom to tell them to repent? and warned them of the judgment that was coming? You know how many generations and how many chances they had over and over to stop? Well, Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Ezekiel, Obadiah, Elijah, many of the Psalms, the judges, even Moses himself warns Edom to repent, and God's judgment is coming. All of them do. And why? There are a number of reasons when Israel fled Egypt, right? They leave Egypt and they're refugees. They're wandering, wandering towards the promised land. And then they're wandering. They come to the country of Edom, which is established and doing great. And they ask, hey, can we just pass through? We don't want to stay. We don't want to take anything. Just let us walk through. And Edom says no. And not just does Edom say no. Edom says, oh, look at these refugees. Let's take advantage of them. Let's kill them all and take their stuff. And God miraculously delivers them. And then again, when Israel is attacked by Babylon, when Israel faces the judgment of God, Edom doesn't just stand there and clap and cheer. They decide, oh, look, again, we're sacking Israel. Great. Let's go down and join in so we can get rich too. So for these and many other sins we don't have time for, God brings his judgment, but only after generations and generations of patience and kindness and grace. Hundreds of years of chances to repent. Because even God's hatred and his wrath is exceedingly kind and gracious and much more than any of us deserve. But God shows Israel his, his covenant grace and his covenant love, and Esau isn't shown that. What's the difference between the two? I really love what um, theologian Ian McDougad says. He says, the difference between the two peoples is not whether they experience trials or difficulties in this world, but it's whether those trials and difficulties terminate in their destruction or whether there is a future beyond the judgment. So the difference is in God's choice and His grace and in their future. God chose Jacob over Esau, and He's stuck by Israel throughout all of their sinful history. He has never abandoned them. He never divorced them. He never decided to do another nation instead. And God's grace is present whether they see it or not. It's all around them if they're just willing to look. Verse 5, your own eyes will see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. He's saying He's already in their midst showing His love to them. 
that His love and His grace is happening even all the way across their borders and outside of their lands. And just like Israel, we too are tempted to think, maybe God doesn't love me. We ask the same question. We look at our circumstances, we look at our suffering, and we think maybe God's abandoned us. Beloved, there's not a, a moment that God has left your side. Not even in your darkest days. And what can help you escape your own spiritual apathy is to lift your eyes. To, to look beyond the borders of your circumstances. To look at your past. To remind yourself of every time that God has shown His love to you. To look at the past of our ancestors in the faith. Recount all the stories of deliverance. Deliverance from lions and fire and death itself. Remember every moment that God shows His grace to an undeserving people. Remind yourself that God has never abandoned His people. Now, you might not feel like God loves you. and The early emotions of the spiritual honeymoon might have faded, but God looks at you and He treats you with love. And every second you have been alive, you have been loved by God. So rest in His love. Let that love warm your soul and draw you back to Him. And whether you feel like it or not, God loves you. And spiritual apathy, it makes us doubt God's love. And, and doubting His love, it has negative repercussions for the rest of our life. There's a reason it begins in these first five verses here, because everything else flows out of that. If you doubt that God's love you, if you doubt God loves you, it, it's going to make it extremely unlikely that you're going to follow Him and obey Him in every area of your life. But point number three is that spiritual apathy destroys our ability to worship Spiritual apathy, it destroys our ability to worship. It completely shatters it because you can't worship God half-heartedly. You cannot worship Him while you're just going through the motions. And it does this a number of ways. First, it does so because we're apathetic in our priorities. Okay, we can't worship God if we don't care about Him like we should. And this is what happens in Israel. And worship, again, it's about much more than what just happens on Sunday morning, much more than just what happens during our music. But worship, it begins in our priorities. What do we value? And Israel doesn't have the right ones. Verse 6, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's my honor? If I'm a master, where's my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests who despise my name. Malachi uses a few examples of what correct priorities look like. Children are supposed to honor their parents. It's the fifth commandment. It's also just a natural law of the world. We know that's true. We expect it, whether you're a Christian or not. Servants are required to honor their masters. Employees have to listen to the boss. It says, God, he's their heavenly father, but they don't honor him. He is their master. He is the Lord. He is the Lord of hosts, as it's said over and over again, yet they do not respect him. And even the priests, they are despising God's name. I've been going over the Ten Commandments on Wednesday night. This last week, we covered the third one is not to take God's name in vain. Yet the priests are doing it every single day. And they can't worship God if they don't honor His name. Because worship begins by believing that God's name is worthy of worship. It begins by prioritizing God. But they haven't. They don't even recognize how wrong their worship is. So they object again. Oh, but you say, this is Israel's objection, well, how? How have we despised your name? God answers in seven, by polluting or by offering polluted food upon my altar. They object again, but you say, how have we polluted you? God's answer by saying that the Lord's table may be despised. 
This is the primary sticking point in their worship. They're offering polluted animals on the altar in the temple. Okay, the Mosaic law, it is filled with descriptions, particularly in Leviticus, of what kind of offerings are acceptable. It tells us about the clean and the unclean. It tells us about the exact kind of animals and what they should be like and how they should bring them. But what we see is that they're not bringing God their best in worship. In fact, what they're bringing to God is offensive to Him. We're saying, look at the kind of animals they're bringing. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? This is a big deal. Don't miss that. This is, God is not just saying, hey, your sacrifices aren't good enough. He's saying your sacrifices are evil and wrong and wicked. Their half-hearted sacrifices are repulsive. Because what kind of animals are they supposed to bring? Well, they're supposed to bring clean animals, unblemished animals, animals that are good and right, perfect animals. Costly animals like males, the kind of animals, right, that win prizes at the fair that everybody wants. Yet they're offering worthless animals. They're offering blind sheep, the calf that can't walk anymore because it stepped into a hole. They offer the ram that's sick with the plague. They're offering animals that they were going to have to put down anyway. It's worse than giving God their second best. They're giving God their worst. They're giving Him the garbage that they don't want. Say, here you go. Here's your sacrifice, God. And this is a problem, too, because the priests are allowing it. Okay, you would think that priests would know the difference between acceptable worship and unacceptable worship. Now, I'm not an animal expert by any stretch of the imagination, but okay, I think it's fairly obvious to tell if an animal is blind or not. Okay, you can usually just look at their eyes and you can tell. Look at the way that they walk. These priests, they handle animals all day long. They got to know what is and what isn't right. Their entire lives are seen in handling livestock. You think they can't tell what people are offering? You think they don't notice if an animal is sick or not? Or if an animal has a bum leg and has to be carried up to the altar? You think they can't tell the difference between an animal that wins first prize and an animal that's not worth anything that you just throw away? You won't even eat it? No. They can and they should know. What should happen is Israelites should come with these worthless animals and say, hey, here's my sacrifice. And the priest should say, no, 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 that is not a sacrifice. You get out of here and you go repent because we're not putting that on the altar. But they don't do that. And they just say, okay, perfect. Let's go through the motions because they don't care either. It's evil that the people do it and it's evil that the priests allow it. And so God says, well, present that to your governor. Is he going to accept that or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? I love that. And God says, why don't you go give those gifts to public officials? See how much they appreciate your great sacrifice and your great gift. Because if you're not going to dare to give that to somebody important, how dare you give that to God? And you think that he will want it. I mean, who among us would serve leftovers, okay, if somebody important came over to visit? If the governor came to your house, would you put dog food on his plate and say, here you go? Maybe you would. I don't know. Wouldn't we give our best china, or our best, we'd make our best dish, our favorite one, that this is what I make when people come and visit, here's my china. And then if that's what we do for people, what should we give to God? What should we put in the offering box? How should we sing in our worship? Now, we might not offer up blind animals anymore, because we don't do that because of Jesus, but we still can be very apathetic in our worship. We offer up lame and sick gifts to God, 
We give the least amount possible in our tithes and offerings. We give God what we don't need. After we go through all of our expenses and fun and entertainment, well, ah, let me see what's left, God. I'll give you that. Might as well just give God pennies from the street. And we'll talk more about that when we get to chapter 3, um, unfortunately, but that's what God talks about, so we have to. But we can also be apathetic in how we give God apathetic singing. And we can cross our arms, leave our hands in our pockets. And we think, ah, I just won't sing unless I like the song. I was at a church once, not here, where there's somebody who would lead worship. And you could tell if they liked the song or not, because they would worship during some songs, and other songs they would not. And they would stand there with a stone-cold face or something. Hmm. Now, I'm not saying we have to dance and shout or jump or sing loudly all the time, but is God not worthy of our best? Is God not worthy of the best of what we have to give, whatever it is, however small, however meager? Verse 9, and now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Is he going to show you favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Do they think that worshiping God this way pleases them? Think God's going to answer their prayers? Do they think God's going to look at their gifts and their worship favorably? Does God see our apathetic worship and is really pleased by it? Malachi says no. He goes even one step further in verse 10. He says something surprising. He says, Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. God says, shut it all down. Just close the temple. He would rather have them stop all of the sick and the blind animals. He would rather get nothing at all and have no one come on the day that it is time to worship. Leviticus 6, the fire. Leviticus 6 describes a fire in the altar that should burn forever. They should always be kindling. It must be eternal. God says, let that go out. I don't care about that if this is what you're going to do. Because all of their offerings and worship is so repulsive to him. He wishes there was just one priest, one righteous person that would say, enough. Verse 11, from the rising of the sun to its setting place, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering, for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. This is actually a bit of a judgment here. And God is also telling them the future, that one day God will be praised in every single nation. And one day, pure offerings will be accepted in far-off places. Because until now, the temple in Jerusalem, that's the only place worship can happen. No other sacrifices, no other fire, no other altar, no other offerings are allowed. It can only happen here in this place. But they have so polluted and ignored God that he says, one day this temple is just going to be done. And I'm going to allow true and good worship in far-off places, even places far across the ocean from Jerusalem and Places like Duncan, Oklahoma. It will be pure and acceptable worship to me. And all over the globe where our brothers and sisters in faith gather and worship even this morning. In verse 12, he says, but you profane it. When you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit that is its food may be despised. Man, when we worship God apathetically and what they are doing, that we are despising his temple, his name, and his home. In our apathetic worship, it's often just bored worship. That's what we see in 13. He tells us, but you say, oh, what a weariness this is. And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what's been taken by violence. They bring stolen things and give that to God. Or what's lame and sick, 
This you bring as your offering. Shall I accept it from your hand, says the Lord. I'm going to focus on that phrase in 13 at the beginning. Look at what they say. What a weariness this is. They're saying, Ugh, it's just so hard to worship you, God. There's so many rules, so many requirements, so much stuff that you want. Your demands, they take too much time. I don't want to do all that. How many of us today think or say something similar? How many today believe that worship is just wearying and boring? Saying, you know what, we'd rather just stay home, just going to watch the service on TV instead of being present. That's fine, I can catch it later. Now, now hear me first, there's good reasons to stay home. There are many in our church family who are, like who are sick or who are traveling and able to come. If you're sick, please do stay home and do that. But there's a significant difference, isn't there, between I can't come and yet I want to, and so I'm going to worship this way, and, ah, man, what a weariness. I just don't think I want to today. I think I will do this instead. There's some who just stay home because they want to, and we think that God's command to gather together is just as optional as sacrificing good animals. I think we just worship however we want, whenever we want, whenever we get around to it. Because if we could just give ourselves communion with buffalo wings and beer and think that's fine, or baptize ourselves at home, as if it doesn't matter to God, it's all up to me. I hear all the time, right, how wearying preaching is, um, in general, not just my own. Right, you know, our world, it's changed so much. It's wearying to have to listen to somebody talk about so long for God's word. And I especially hear all the time, whatever you do, don't read the whole thing, whatever you're preaching. But definitely, oh, you're doing Malachi. Do not read a whole chapter of Malachi. People are going to fall asleep. Listen to me, the problem with our weariness, the problem with Israel's weariness, is not that God is boring but that we have been overcome with spiritual apathy. The problem isn't with God, it is with us. The problem with Israel, it wasn't that the sacrifices and the liturgy and the requirements and the temple, that all of it was wrong. It was good and God had a purpose behind it and they needed it. The problem was with their own hearts. And the same is true for us today. And if we're honest, sometimes things like prayer, man, we just, we don't pray because we think prayer is boring. We'd rather do something exciting something that has an immediate result. I'd rather do anything than pray. Listen to what God says about this kind of apathetic worship in verse 14. He says, Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, yet sacrifices the Lord what is blemished. For I am the great king, says the Lord of hosts. My name will be feared among the nations. It says that those who cheat God, those who worship God apathetically, they will be cursed and they will face consequences. Those who could Come and worship him and do not. You say, ah, oh, what a weariness. Cursed be the cheat. And yet, because our God is a great king, and it is miraculous that people are not constantly struck dead in worship, like Ananias and Sapphira. The whole reason that happened in the book of Acts was to show that God still takes worship very seriously. That's why in but when we do communion, um, 1 Corinthians 11, I don't always read it, but there's a warning on how we should repent and don't drink this improperly because some of you will be sick and maybe even die if you don't worship rightly. And yet, because our God is gracious, He doesn't kill us every moment that we fail because otherwise this room would be empty. But our God is a great King. And his name deserves to be respected. And the most wonderful thing about our king is his grace. Is that Jesus leaves his heavenly throne and he comes down to earth. 
Because even our best worship on our best days, with all of our best effort and our best sacrifices, are not enough. And so Jesus himself went on the altar. And he was the perfect lamb who was the one sacrifice that could finally deal with our sins and save us. And his death and his resurrection are what give us life. And Jesus is the only cure for any kind of spiritual apathy. Now, I don't have a 10-step plan. I don't think we can save ourselves. I don't have a good three-point sermon for how to avoid all these seasons of the soul. The only thing I have to offer you is Jesus. Because Jesus is the only thing that works. And we can't do it ourselves. So in summary, where we've been this morning, where we're going, is really the message of the book of Malachi, it's Malachi is that the people need to repent of their spiritual apathy. They need to come back. And where it starts is the spiritual apathy. It starts by making us doubt God's love. And that spiritual apathy destroys our ability to worship. So what we need to do is we need to repent of our apathy. We need to run to Jesus. Because he is gracious and kind even to apathetic worshipers. And if we can just muster the strength to call upon his name. So remind yourself that God loves you. And let the love of God flow through you and call you back to him. Let's bow our heads in prayer and invite our worship team to come back up and lead us once more. Lord, I ask that we would be just filled with the love of God. Lord, that you would come in this place, that we would feel you tangibly, that those of us who are struggling, those of us who are weak, those of us who who barely made it here this morning, because it just feels like such a weariness, Lord, you, you see, would you be gracious to us? Would you help us? Would you strengthen us? Would you fill us? Lord, would you overwhelm us with your love and your grace? And would you change us and transform us? Because we can't do it on your own. Every time we try to do it by ourselves, we fall and we fail. And we just get more tired. We don't want to be tired anymore, Jesus. We just want you. Would you come? We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Won't you stand as we worship our Savior once more? Amen. Our God is faithful forever. Um, Hear this benediction from 1 Corinthians 15 from our faithful God. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. God bless you. Go in peace. Thank you.